1 Corinthians is almost breathtaking in its breadth, its scope. It's the most wide-ranging and complete letter that Paul wrote. If you're uh, used to Paul taking several chapters of careful argument to make one or two points like he usually does, even things like Gentiles and Jews should eat together, that's Galatians in a sense, or even thanks for the gift, that's Philippians. You'll be amazed at how, uh, or just the variety of subjects that Paul tackles and with the clarity with which he does that in this letter. 1 Corinthians beautifully summarizes the central themes of the Christian faith, the cross, right? We preach Christ crucified, 123. Grace, what do you have that you did not receive, 4-7. God, there is one God, the Father from whom all things came and for whom we live, and there is but one Lord, Jesus Christ, in 8-6. Mission, I have become all things to all people so that by all possible means... I might save some, 9.22. Love, so now faith, hope, and love abide. These three, but the greatest of these is love, 13.13. The Gospel, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that He was buried, that He was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, 15.3-4. And hope, the last enemy to be destroyed, is death in 15.26. Without 1 Corinthians, it would be hard to imagine um, how church services actually worked in the New Testament. We would know next to nothing about the Lord's Supper, for example, in these first generation churches. We have no idea how spiritual gifts are supposed to function in Christian worship. But thanks to the chaos in Corinth and Paul's response to it, we actually have plenty of guidance on these things. American culture, our culture as we live in it right now, is increasingly immoral irrational, right? There doesn't seem to be really any end in sight. In this way, we as the church here in Moundsville are very much like the church in Corinth, living in the midst of an increasingly immoral society. This letter helps us think through how to speak into all this with specifics on practical application on things like sexuality, idolatry, food, divorce, remarriage, singleness, adultery, church discipline, even incest at one point that we wouldn't find anywhere else right? in Scripture. In many ways, the Corinthians were a mess, and clearly God loved them anyway. It's vital that we think about grace and we talk about grace, but sometimes we just need to see grace. right? We need to watch as this exasperated apostle talks to a rebellious and divisive church with tenderness and affection and with a faith that believes in the transformation that can only come from the power of the Holy Spirit, the example of Christ and the faithfulness of God. That's what this letter will put so beautifully on display. The power of the cross for all that the church needs. It brings hope to Corinthians everywhere, including us. Roman Corinth, for what it's worth, to where, to which Paul was writing, it was a large, bustling, commercial, pluralistic city in southern Greece. It was the regional capital of Achaia. Uh, known, among other things, for its port on the Peloponnesian Isthmus, its sexual promiscuity, and its hosting of the biennial Isthmian Games. It was a, was a major place in those days, originally a Greek city. It had been destroyed by the Romans in 146 B.C., then 100 years later, Julius Caesar had it rebuilt. Um, we really don't know how large it was in Paul's day. The estimates are amazing. They range from, uh, Corinth had a population of 20,000 to 800,000, so massive range, but an estimate between 40 and 60,000 is probably 
the most correct or the most reasonable. Uh, Paul had founded the church on his second missionary journey. You can read about that in Acts 18, 1 through 11, spending a year and a half there, even though it was difficult after hearing in a dream that God had many people in that city. Keep on preaching. Just keep preaching the gospel. There are many here that belong to me. This letter was written a few years later, after Acts 18, in the spring of A.D. 54-55. It's a response to a very concerning letter that Paul had gotten about what was going on there. It's referenced in chapter 7, verse 1, and some even more worrying news from the members of that church that Paul had also received, and he'll reference in 1.11. Um, as with the city, it's hard to be sure how large the church was. It couldn't have been much fewer than 50, given all the names and households that Paul mentions, but it's unlikely to have been more than 200 or so, because the whole church met together in one place. Whether in Gaius's house, as mentioned in Romans 16.23, or another venue, maybe a... Um, you know, a restaurant or even a barn was possible back then. If we imagine a church of about 100 people in a city of about 50,000, we probably aren't too far off as we try to get the Corinthian church in our heads. It might encourage us to realize how similar those numbers are to the situation of many churches today. Not that every church is off the rails like Corinth was. In some ways it wasn't, but in key ways it was. But it does help us to relate to the fact that we're about the same size, at least our church anyway. And it might also help us understand how outnumbered the Christians were in Corinth and what implications being so outnumbered had for the life of the church. We need to understand this because the most amazing thing about the Corinthian church wasn't its size or its demographic makeup, but the degree to which worldly ideas and practices were accepted in the congregation. And, and when you hear that, don't think, oh, they were compromised by sin. They were easy on sin or light on sin. In some ways, yes, but that isn't even really the extent of it. That's one small part of how they had been, um, by which these worldly ideas and practices had infiltrated the church. Not just in terms of immorality, but also in terms of their approach to pastoral ministry. For example, what should a pastor be like? What should he strive to be like in a church and a community. Their organization was an issue. Their administration was a major issue. It's as if the boundaries between the church and the world in all those senses had almost completely disappeared. Corinth is a church that was trying to operate like businesses operate, like commercial companies operate, because that's what they saw around them, and they were intrigued by that and thought that's where wisdom was, and so they were adopting all these principles in their church and among their pastors and things like this. Some New Testament churches struggled with opposition and persecution from the cities around them. The Corinthians faced the opposite problem completely. Assimilation into a pagan, promiscuous, competitive, idolatrous culture. Like the American church at large today in the world relative to what most of the churches around the world are facing. Most churches around the world are currently being genuinely oppressed on most continents and in most places. We enjoy the freedom of religion. We enjoy many of these benefits, and at the earthly level they are, but they are extremely dangerous to the church when we are not being persecuted. And I know that sounds crazy, because why would you want to be persecuted? I'll never argue you should want to be persecuted. No, you shouldn't. I don't want to be persecuted. But the fact of the matter is, a church is adversely affected if it gets to operate in total ease and comfort and freedom. The gospel was never 
built for that. Or, or like you, you can't thrive unless you have the backing of your government and your city. The gospel is the exact opposite of that. that that's a huge part of what Corinthians will argue. Much of Paul's effort in writing this letter, uh, whether it relates to church leadership, sexuality, the nature of the church, idols, food, corporate worship, or the resurrection, it aims to reestablish the differences between the church and the city. What is different about us? What is different about us? And between Christianity as a religion and idolatry as a religion. That is one of many reasons why it's such a helpful text for those of us who live in what is basically post-Christian America. No. Structurally, the letter is very simple. It's divided into five major sections after an introduction and some thanksgiving and before a conclusion, giving travel plans and final greetings and all that. Division and the cross in 110 to 421. Fleeing sexual immorality in 5.1 to 7.40. Fleeing idolatry in 8.1 to 11.1. Corporate worship from 11.2 to 12.40 or 14.40. Uh, and the resurrection of the body in 15.1 to 58. But as we'll see, starting this morning or tonight, what, what Paul is going to do or show is only one thing will heal the church in Corinth. Only one thing can bring peace to division, God's peace to division. Only one thing can bring holiness where there's impurity. Only one thing can bring wisdom where there's misunderstanding and unite the people once more for the sake of the gospel. It has been, it is, and always will be, as long as our Lord tarries, the cross of Jesus Christ. There is so much in the cross. The cross is given in Corinthians as the source and the means of all Christianity, including the very life and operations of the church. And so let me pray and we'll dig in here. We're going to look at the first nine verses in chapter 1 tonight. Father, I am thankful for Your Word. I'm thankful for the opportunity to preach. Father, I ask that You would help my mind to be fixed on this passage for the sake of preaching it tonight. May Your Spirit guide me where He would have me go and say what He would have me say. Lord, I am in more need of You and this Your Spirit than I realize I am. And so, Lord, I pray that You would come to my help and overshadow me and carry me. Lord, would You enable each person that has come tonight to listen and to be encouraged and edified by what is here. Lord, teach us how to be doers of the Word and not hearers only. We ask and pray this in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. So let me read verses 1-9 through nine of chapter 1. Paul, called by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus and our brother Sosthenes, to the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints together with all those who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I give thanks to my God always for you because of the grace of God that was given you in Christ Jesus, that in every way you were enriched in Him in all speech and all knowledge, even as the testimony about Christ was confirmed among you, so that you are not lacking in any gift as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ, who will sustain you to the end guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. Let me read that again. Who will sustain you to the end, guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful. 
by whom you were called into the fellowship of His Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Right out of the gate. If any of us are, I should say, if, if, if I were to have written 1 Corinthians, the letter would have been much shorter than 16 chapters. The church was a mess. It becomes apparent very quickly that the church is a mess, and some of it defies description. There was infighting, yes, and squabbling. That was a major issue. There was also incest in the church of Jesus Christ. They were sleeping with prostitutes, some of them. There was idolatry. There was a blatant disrespect for the Lord's Supper and disregard for its sanctity and its honor. There were chaotic worship services. There were some, and it was a growing issue, that denied the future resurrection our Lord had promised. And who knows what else, if if those are the problems. There's no way I would have been patient enough to write 16 carefully thought-out chapters of pastoral wisdom. It probably would have been a very short paragraph. If any, you know, stop it, repent, change your ways. Maybe I'll visit you guys sometime. I don't know. Get it together. Amen. Something like that. Something impatient and immature. And, but Paul doesn't do anything of the sort. And he knows all of it. He doesn't do anything like that. The, the length of this letter, the amount of care he takes in writing it, reveal how much he loves the Corinthians still. And he wants to win them over. He wants them to be corrected. He argues with theological depth even when the topics are very obvious, like, hey, you shouldn't be having sex with prostitutes. Right? Like, like, he's kind and patient, even in something like, well, duh, like who in the church thinks that's okay? Well, they did. They did. And this is how he talks to them. This highlights his desire for believers not just to change their actions, but why? Why has God called us to live the way he's called us to live? He often speaks very tenderly to them. It shows his affection for them. But most strikingly, I think he, he sandwiches these ethical teachings between sections on, on the cross in chapter 1 and the resurrection later in chapter 15. So bookending this letter is the gospel. For Paul, the gospel is the beginning and the end of the Christian life. In the truth of the gospel, the foundation of the church is found. This opening paragraph is where Paul's love for this church in this letter first becomes clear. He names Sosthenes as the one who uh, is writing it all down for him, I think is what he's saying here. Paul makes sure to connect the Christians in Corinth to all Christians everywhere. Right? But notice that is, is right. he reminds them right away that the church of Jesus Christ is just that, wherever it is found. The arrogance in Corinth, that there, there's an arrogance there that not only has caused them to... to not realize the genuine sinfulness of the congregation. But also, for some reason, they thought they were it. They thought they were the best church. They were the true Christians. They were the ones that were really getting it right, that really cared about the main things. And all this is going on under their nose, and still they're that arrogant. And so the first thing Paul does is is remind them of who they are in light of the church all through what would have been Asia Minor at the time. Right? You, you are, you are called to be saints just like the rest of all those who call upon His name. You're no better than the rest of the church. You're a part of them. Christians are a part of one family. But first of all, really notice how central Jesus is. If you're to walk back through it and He's mentioned by name nine times in the opening nine verses as the one who called Paul to be an apostle in verse 1, 
the one in whom the Corinthians have been made holy, and upon whose name they call in verse 2, the giver of grace in verse 3, and the one in whom that grace has been given in verse 4. Jesus is the source of all riches in verse 5. He's the subject of Paul's preaching in verse 6. He's the basis for Christian hope in verse 7. All history is pointing forward to the day of our Lord Jesus Christ in verse 8 when He will return as judge and king. And yet it's this same Jesus, that Jesus, with whom we have fellowship, communion, life in common in the meantime. He is Jesus Christ, our Lord, in verse 9. For Paul, Jesus is everything. And as a result, he is extremely grateful. He can be grateful for the Corinthian church in spite of all the dirt he has on them. That's the difference of making Christ central. Making Jesus central in your own heart changes things, even our desires or our hearts toward others and the way that we see them. It's, it's good. It does the heart good to focus on Christ and what Christ has done and what Christ has said and who Christ is for us. It transforms our hearts. It turns us into the people God has called us to be. His gratefulness, this gratefulness he has, flows in part from God's call, which as for every church is a call to be saints, a holy people in verse 2. And it flows in part from his own experience, his own experience of the power of God's grace. He knows what it can do. And that grace has transformed their lives and so has backed up the truthfulness of his message in verse 6. Even as the testimony about Christ was confirmed among you, Paul is also deeply grateful for them in spite of all their issues because of the spiritual gifts that God has clearly poured out on this church in verse 7. Enriching them in every way and particularly in verse 5, particularly in speech and knowledge. Which would have been very important for winning a city like Corinth to the gospel. But keep in mind what's coming. And notice how then that them being enriched in the ability to speak and in knowledge does not somehow compromise when we read later that the gospel is the foolishness of God and he doesn't make it known through the wisdom of men or fancy speech. But notice that, that we'll learn later, does not mean, because of what we see here, that they've been enriched and gifted in all speech and knowledge, that God thrives somehow in unlearned foolishness, that that's what he means when he says the gospel is not the wisdom of men or doesn't rely on wisdom and speech. It says God has gifted them in these things. Well, why if it doesn't matter? It's the way we see it and use it that matters. It's not that you toss the ability to speak well out the window in order to preach the gospel more effectively or that a preacher shouldn't study or learn or know. No, that, that's, that's, that's an easy way out. Because here he says they've been enriched, they've been gifted in speech and knowledge. It, what is the purpose of being gifted in speech? To proclaim the gospel. The issue will be how do you view the gift of speech and the gift of knowledge in light of the fact that God does not rely on those things to make the gospel bear fruit. That doesn't mean they aren't important or God doesn't use them. So we'll get into that more later But as we go through the series. But these gifts that God has poured out on them have not been handled wisely in Corinth. And Paul will come back to that. But for now, the fact that God has given so many gifts to this church is a reason for thanksgiving. Paul is grateful for this. So he's not, he's not 
controlled by what he sees their problems are. Right? That, that's, that's not how he sees them. But maybe even more than his thankfulness for them in light of all their problems, the most amazing thing Paul displays in this opening is the level of unshakable confidence he has in the future of these Corinthians. Look at verse 8 one more time here. Who will sustain you to the end, guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, if what I said earlier is true, and it's true not because I say it, but because the text will tell us all the problems that they have, how can Paul make such a statement in a church that is actively off the rails in disorganization, mismanagement, and outright immorality? Firm to the end? Guiltless? How, how can you call them guiltless, Paul? There are New Testament churches to whom Paul probably could have written that with a straight face. Philippi, maybe, Thessalonica, but Corinth, of all the churches, to say that to Corinth. And yet Paul's certain. He's certain of it. You're, you're going to be fine. When that day arrives, you'll be standing in Christ, guiltless. No concern that they won't be. They will be confirmed guiltless to the end. They will be spotless on the day of judgment. Why does Paul say that? Right? Is it just wishful thinking? Is he, is he not aware of what's going on? What could possibly be the basis for saying that to the Corinthian Christians? Because, beloved, it is not the moral performance of the church on earth, but the absolute faithfulness of God in heaven. That's what our salvation hinges on. That's what our church identity hinges on. It is God's commitment to His people by which the apostles make these great promises with such certainty. It's because of who God is. It's not the strength of our commitment to Him that they are riding on and banking on and believing in. The strength of God's commitment to us is the guarantee that we will make it to that day. That the Corinthians would make it, in spite of all the sin that characterized them at the moment. Is that how we would, would we talk to blatant sinners who claim to be Christians? Would we talk to them like this? Right, pastors need to read that and think that through. In spite of all the sin that characterizes them at the moment and all the warnings he will issue later, he's sure that they will reach that day. And on that day, they will be guiltless and spotless because that's what Jesus does. The same is true of us today in verse 9. Here's, here's, here's the why in a sentence. God is faithful. That's why. That's why. God is faithful. That's the foundation for Corinth. As he heads into this, which at times is an extremely corrective letter. What's the hope here that God is faithful? What's the reason He's even taking the time? Are they too far gone? It sure will seem like it at times. Right? I mean, they're allowing incest to thrive in the church. That's disgusting. That's a major issue. And He says this to them. Why is He so sure? Is, is He banking on His preaching? Is He banking on the letter to do it? And the way He is with words? Is he banking on his own commitment to be the apostle and kind of the, 
when the apostles were still alive, they were the de facto leaders of all the churches, even though by this time they all had their own elders and pastors. No. What, why, is, why is Paul so confident? Because God is faithful. That's the foundation for Corinthians. Beloved, that's the foundation for Moundsville Baptist Church. God is faithful. We can't trust in ourselves. We can't trust in our commitments and dedications and all these things for the purification, the education, or the sanctification of our church. We can't rest in those things. We can't bank on those things happening and therefore we become something that we aren't right now. You can't look to yourselves for this. We can't look at ourselves and say, I need to do this. I need, no. You need to look at Him. God is faithful. God is faithful. We are God's temple. He's going to get into that here. We are God's building. Not, not our own. We don't create ourselves. There's not a church in Moundsville because of people. There's a church in Moundsville because God wants to reach people here. That's why. This, this is why it's so important to get away from names. Paul doesn't even do that. We can't do this. We cannot do this. We are susceptible to the exact same issues Corinth is. What we need to be reminded of on a constant basis is that God is faithful. We are God's temple. He's doing the building. Christ said this, I will build my church. You don't do that. I'll build it. What's required of you is that you are faithful to what I have said. We are God's building, and yet individually, as members, we are members of one another. We, we, we won't get this, we, we can't get this through our heads that when we hurt others, we're hurting ourselves. Every time we stick a knife in a brother's back, it would be best if we just took it out and stuck it in ourselves at the same time. What pulls a church out of the mud will not be a spirit of individualism or rededication. It will be a recalibration towards the overcoming, sin-defeating, air-clearing faithfulness of God on our behalf. We are people created and sustained and who live and act by faith. And faith is not this spiritual force or power that each of us possesses and puts into play on our own. And then the Spirit comes and helps. Beloved, faith is a gift. Faith has an object. When the Bible talks about faith, it's not talking about this character trait. It's talking about the confidence that God will keep His promises. It's the belief that Christ has already overcome the world. And we're playing with house money here. When we are struggling, and again, we aren't struggling with some of the issues Corinth was, praise God. But when we are struggling, we need to go back to the Gospel. We need to go back to the relentless faithfulness of God to us. The faithfulness that guaranteed completion of the task in Corinth. And now in Moundsville. God is faithful. This is the foundation for everything that comes in 1st and 2nd Corinthians. God is faithful to you, to our church.